turn in your Bibles to page 980, 980, and we start at Matthew chapter 17 and verse 24 at what can only be described as a strange passage. It's only in Matthew's Gospel and it's one of the strangest miracles that is recorded in the life of Jesus and Jesus had some very strange miracles. It's chapter 17 and I'm reading from verse 24. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? For their sons or for others? And when he said, from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offence to them, go to the sea, cast a hook and take a first fish that comes up and when you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Now that is a very strange passage, isn't it? Why is there the shekel in the mouth of the fish why is Jesus, it's a strange thing. It's strange for all kinds of reasons. That the miracle of the coin in the fish's mouth is strange because, well, it's not like other miracles, showing Jesus' compassion or bringing the kingdom's mercy or salvation. It's strange because it doesn't seem, it seems that Jesus is using nature to satisfy his own needs and in the situation of financial embarrassment. It's strange because Jesus seems to be using his power to turn stone into bread. He wouldn't do that under the temptation, but he's now getting a coin from a fish. What's the difference? It's strange because it's such a small amount of money. Why do you need a miracle to procure a small coin? It's strange because it's a miracle that only Peter saw. So why not just find the coin on the ground and or ask one of your supporters for it, or ask Peter for it. It's strange because it's not even describing Jesus doing a miracle. He just tells Peter what to do and then Peter does it. But when we look more carefully at this passage, we'll see that it's actually not about the miracle. It's really about the question of tax. The miracle is the least important element of these four verses that we have before us. That there was a fish with a coin in its mouth is no big deal. That's not so extraordinary. That's not a denial of natural order or something. Other fish are very good at biting at uh, silver things that go across the surface of the water. Uh, that's the way to catch them. And that's no big deal. Uh, that it was the particular fish that Peter caught, well, that's the great coincidence, isn't it? But it's not about the miracle. The real issue is whether Jesus will pay the tax. A question that they put to Peter and he answers in the affirmative in verse 25 when he was asked, he said, well, yes, of course Jesus will pay the tax. But Jesus immediately challenges Peter about this answer when Peter comes home. Remember, Peter's other name is Simon. It's important to notice what the tax in question was about. It's called in verse 24 the, the half shekel tax or the two drachma tax because it wasn't a Roman tax, it was a Jewish temple tax. 
See, this wasn't a, a Roman tax collected from the people to be paid to Caesar. That question is yet to come in Matthew chapter 22 when Jesus gives his famous dictum, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. We, we haven't come to that issue yet. Now, the half shekel tax is the small atonement offering to God that you pay in order to be counted amongst God's people. For when there comes the census of God's people, every person in the census has to pay the half shekel tax. It comes from the passage that we read just a few moments ago, Exodus chapter 30, verses 11 to 16, where every Israelite had to pay a half shekel. Rich person, poor person, makes no difference, it's the same tax. A tiny tax, not a big tax, a tiny tax, because it's a tax for atonement and it's a tax for redemption. That is, the Israelites were purchased by God out of slavery and this is their redemption tax. And the people, the people were sinful and this was their atonement tax. And so it was used to be paid for the tabernacle in Exodus and then when the temple was built it was used for the temple and so it became the temple tax. But it was paid for the atonement that the temple brought to the people to release them from God's wrath on their sin and to accept them to be numbered amongst God's redeemed people. To pay the tax was to say I'm an Israelite redeemed by God and atoned for by the sacrifices in the temple. Now, when the temple tax collectors asked Peter whether his teacher paid the tax, Peter's answer was quite straightforward. Yes, of course he paid the tax. He was an Israelite to be numbered among the Israelites. He respected the temple as the house of God and in particular he was a law keeper and he taught his disciples to keep the law. Of course he'd pay this tax, especially this minor tax. There's nothing surprising in Peter's answer to the question. In fact, it's almost surprising that the question was asked rather than the answer that was given. But there is something astonishing about Jesus' intervention. For as soon as Peter comes home, Jesus initiates the conversation with Peter about his answer by telling a parable. And the parable seems to have nothing to do with what's gone before. This parable implies Jesus' question that you see at the end of verse 25, from whom do the, uh, the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? This must have been a very strange moment for Peter. Why is Jesus asking him about the kings of the earth? Why is he asking him about tolls and taxes? For Jesus' parable is a very general parable, a kind of hypothetical question that he puts out to Peter. It's not about any particular king. It's not about any particular toll or tax. Uh, he just, it's not even about the half shekel tax. Actually, the word is a different Greek word there. Just in general, when kings tax people, do kings tax his, their own family so as to be able to pay for the people? Or do they tax the people in order to pay for their own family? Well, kings down the centuries have always been exactly the same. They tax the people to pay for their family. 
They don't tax their family to pay for the people. This was a no-brainer and even Peter could get the right answer, which is extraordinary because he generally gets the wrong answer. But in verse 26, he gets the right, right answer, not from the sons of the king, but from others, from the people from which we read Jesus' conclusion at the end of verse 26. Then the sons are free. Free from the obligation to pay the tax. They are the sons for whom the tax is being collected. And so they're not obliged to pay the tax themselves. Now, at this point, it's quite reasonable to ask, so what? I mean, that's interesting, that's fascinating, but so what? Okay, it's true, sons don't pay taxes. The princes, the sons of the kings don't pay taxes. But what's that got to do with the price of fish and, uh, fish and chips in, uh, in South America today? I mean, it just is one of those kinds of, you've asked this hypothetical question about taxes and kings and, and you've got the right answer and I don't see the point. Then suddenly we're confronted with the implicit claim of Jesus. He doesn't pay this offering to the Lord, this temple tax, because he is a son. Because he doesn't need atonement. Because he doesn't need to be numbered among the people of God. Because he doesn't need to be redeemed. See, at chapter 3 at his baptism, the voice from heaven came declaring, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And then in chapter 16, Peter declared, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And in the early part of chapter 17, on the Mount of Transfiguration, the voice from heaven came declaring, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Who is the son? Why, Jesus is the son. And the sons are free from paying the tax. Now Jesus is teaching Peter that he, Jesus, is the Son of God. Not one of those from whom the taxes are collected, but one of those for whom the taxes are collected. He is not one of the redeemed Israelites. He is the one who comes to redeem the Israelites. He's not one of those whose sins require atonement, he is the one who comes to be the atonement for others. He's not one who needs the temple to meet God, for he is the temple of God, where others can meet God in him. This tax is for him. It's about him. It's not paid by him. Peter, you haven't understood. You said I'm the son of God, but you haven't got it. If I am the Son of God, then I don't have to pay this tax. You haven't understood who I am. You haven't understood why I've come. Which explains Jesus' action. Where at one and the same time, he pays the tax without paying the tax. Where at one and the same time, he upholds his free sonship not to have to pay the tax, while causing no offence to anybody else by still paying what citizens are obliged to pay. For Jesus tells Peter in verse 27, however, not to give offence to them. 
go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up and when you open its mouth you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Jesus voluntarily places himself under the law that he didn't have to keep for the sake of other people so that no would not cause offence to them. And in that action of having the tax paid, Jesus exemplifies what he's come into the world to do and how we should live in response to that. You see, we see what he has come into the world to do. Galatians 4 puts it this way. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Jesus came into the world, the world of sin, this world, but more, he came into the world where the law of God condemned people and he placed himself under the law in order to redeem those who were under the law. It's one of the characteristics of false prophets that they don't place themselves under the law. Uh, Muhammad had laws specially for him that all other Muslims aren't allowed to have. Freedoms that the Muslim man's only allowed for marriages, whereas Muhammad was allowed more than that. Uh, There were any number of rules that Muhammad didn't have to keep. It's the same with Mr. Moon and the Moonyotes, uh, that was the, the 20th century Korean prophet. It was the same with Joseph Smith, Joseph Smith, the leader of Mormonism. He didn't have to obey the rules that all the Mormons have to believe. But Jesus, when he came into the world, he didn't have to keep the law. But he came into the world under the law in order to redeem those who were under the law. It's the same with kings and rulers, isn't it? That there's one set of rules for those who govern the country and there's another set of rules for those who are governed in the country. And the kings of the ancient world were absolute monarchs. They, they did what they wanted to while they charged everybody else to keep the law that they were setting out for people. But not so Jesus, the king. Though he was the king and ruler of all, though he was the lawgiver, he was born of a woman, born under the law because he came to redeem those who were under the law. Jesus didn't come to abandon the law, but to fulfill the law by placing himself under its requirements and placing himself under its condemnation. For in so doing, he was able to redeem the slaves of sin out of their bondage to the law and condemnation and to make them the sons of God and the heirs of God. So though he didn't need to pay this tax, yet in order to cause no offence to the tax collectors, he organised that it be paid. Not, mind you, out of the normal method from his own wages or his own savings, but by the grace of God with a coin in the mouth of the fish. Thus showing Peter that he wasn't paying the tax while at the same time making sure that the tax was paid. Furthermore, he includes Peter in the sonship that doesn't need to pay the temple tax. For the coin in the fish's mouth was not a half a shekel, but a full shekel that was to pay not just for Jesus, but for Peter as well. 
For as we read in that Galatians passage, and because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Jesus came not only as the son, but to redeem the slaves to become sons. And so just as Jesus didn't have to pay the tax to the temple, neither did his disciples have to pay the tax to the temple. But Jesus provided for Peter the tax for the temple. And secondly, in having the tax paid, Jesus exemplified how we should live. Not standing on our rights, but putting ourselves out for others accepting their obligations and requirements for the sake of serving them. For we who are no longer under the law and are free from the law and its condemnation, yet are not to use our freedom to serve our sinful selves, but to serve one another in love. For by so doing we will fulfil the law. So again, reading in Galatians we read, for you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbour as yourself. We're freed from the law. You shall not steal, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not kill, you shall not bear false witness. We're freed from the law. But we're not freed from the law to commit adultery and to murder and to steal. No, no, we're freed from the law that condemns us for our failures. We're freed from the law to love our neighbour as ourselves. And if I love my neighbour as myself, I won't commit adultery. I will not kill. I will not steal. I will not bear false witness. We're not freed from the law to live as sinners. We're freed from the law to live as God's sons. And that, of course, means living quite differently, radically differently, dramatically differently, differently in a way that fulfills the law. For we're to think like Jesus thought. He didn't count equality with God as a thing of grasping, but a thing of giving. God loves the cheerful giver. He didn't think of being a king by getting people to serve him. He thought of being a king by giving his life as a servant. And so by laying down his life for the benefit of others, so we as his disciples are to live, laying down our lives for the benefits of others. It's a different way of living, which means you will not stand on your rights. Our society at the moment is all about our rights. That is a fundamental knee-jerk reaction of people. I have the right to this. But we won't necessarily use our rights. I've discovered of recent times, because of my grand age and because I'm a clergyman, I'm entitled to a senior's card. Now, that's a lovely thing to have because that's a $2.50 trip anywhere that you want to go on public transport, which is in itself worth having, to say nothing of the other discounts. I'm entitled 
to use it. But I'm still in full receipt of a salary. Why should I use my rights as a senior? I'm entitled to, perfectly legal to, I've got every right to, but the seniors card has been set up for those who are seniors and are no longer in receipt of salary. That's what it's been set up for. Just because I'm weird and have worked beyond retirement age doesn't mean that I have the right to use... Well, I have the right. But Christians don't live by rights. Christians live by service. By wanting to give to others, not wanting to take, not want to stand on our dignity. Now, please, those of you retired folk who are amongst us at the moment and who have come in on the $2.50 seniors card, good on you, I'll be with you soon. I'm all for it. I think it's a wonderful provision of our community and it's a really first class system and I'm glad to pay taxation for it. As long as I'm earning. I should be paying taxation for it. But there is this knee-jerk reaction in our community today of seeking my rights and living by my rights, demanding my rights, and it's not just over the seniors card, it's over a whole range of issues. And it's not the way Christians are to think. We have to think like the Lord Jesus Christ, who didn't stand on his rights, but got a coin out of the mouth of the fish to make sure the tax was paid, though he didn't have to pay the tax himself. But he went out of the way to teach Peter that he was truly the son of God who didn't have to pay this tax because this tax was the tax to be paid to him not to be the tax to be paid by him for he truly was the son for whom the tax was being collected he truly was the redeemer for whom the tax was being collected he truly was the atonement for whom the tax was being collected. He truly was the temple of God for whom the tax was collected. If ever there was a man who didn't need the tax to be paid by him, he was the man because he was the son and taxes are collected from others for the sake of the son and not only him but Peter. So you see from this strange little passage at the end of Matthew 17, and it is a strange one, isn't it? You see from this little strange little... It's not about the miracle. The miracle is a minor matter. A man can walk on water. Getting a coin out of a fish's mouth is enough. It, it, it's not about the miracle. It's really about who does he think he is? And who are we? For he thought he was the Son of God come into the world as the ransom for sin to live and die under the law, condemned by the law, so as to be an atonement for the people. He thought of himself as the Son of God, as the atonement, as the temple, as the Redeemer. That's who he thought of himself. That's what this passage is here for, that we might understand that he truly was the Son of God for whom the temple tax was collected. And as the Son of God, who does he think we are? Well, he knew his disciples were those redeemed by his death and atoned for by his sacrifice. And therefore his disciples also were no longer slaves to sin, to the law, to condemnation or to death, but born again as the children of God and heirs of eternal life. And therefore no longer in need of the temple 
and the priest and the sacrifice and the altar. That's all fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why this building is not a temple. That's why this building has no altar. That's why this building has no priest and, it, and there is no sacrifice that is being offered here because all that is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our temple is in heaven where Jesus is. Our sacrifice is in heaven where Jesus took it. Our priest is Jesus who is in heaven. We, we are the sons of God. Sons and daughters, it makes you feel better, but girls, you're also sons. We're the sons of God. That's the status we have. We're the heirs of eternal life. That's who we are. We don't pay the tax to the temple. We actually have no interest in the building in Jerusalem anymore. That's an irrelevance in terms of our relationship with God. Because he is the son, we are the sons. And therefore, we do not need to keep paying to the Jews to the temple in hope of finding atonement and redemption and forgiveness and acceptance because we have all those things in the Lord Jesus Christ. So chapter 17 ends where chapter 16 ends. Same thing, same questions. Who do you think Jesus is? Why do you think he came? What should you do about it? It's always the same questions in the end. Who do you think Jesus is? Was he truly the son of God? The redeemer, the atoner, the sacrifice? Well then, who do you think you are? And what are you going to do about it? See, that's why every week we have printed on the background this, this uh, back uh, our outline, this little prayer. Because wherever we wander about the scriptures, we keep coming up to the same thing. The same fundamental relationship with God through Jesus Christ that is expressed in this prayer. And so, let me conclude Bible study today. Short study, short passage big topic. Let me conclude it today by leading us in this prayer again, which acknowledges our need of Jesus, his death, his resurrection, for us to be the children of God. Let's pray. As I pray it, you might like to pray it in the quietness of your own mind to God. Dear God, I know that I'm not worthy to be accepted by you. I don't deserve your gift of eternal life. I am guilty of rebelling against you and ignoring you. I need forgiveness. Thank you for sending your son to die for me that I may be forgiven. Thank you that he rose from the dead to give me new life. Please forgive me and change me that I may live with Jesus as my ruler. Amen.